For the next uh, several weeks, we're going to take a break from our normal routine uh, and pattern of sermons. Hopefully you're aware that our, our typical habit is to take a book of the Bible and preach through it, or at least preach through some section of it, chapter by chapter. We've done that already this year through books like Leviticus and Hebrews and Joshua. Now, I want to be clear that we're not moving away from the Bible over the next six weeks, but we're going to take a different approach to it. And we're going to drill down on a particular topic of Scripture. We're going to drill down on and explore the topic of Christian maturity. At the end of Colossians chapter 1 in verses 28 and 29, the Apostle Paul describes the goal of his ministry like this. It says, Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Notice here that when Paul expresses this goal, it's a universal goal. He's not just trying to get a few Christians to be mature, just the pastors, let's say. No, he wants every Christian in every church that he ministers to to, to grow up into maturity. And Paul describes this as not just a, a passing interest. This is what he, he toils with. He struggles with Christ's power to this end, that, that Christians would grow into the image of Christ. Every Christian. That's his goal. And, and it gives us a window of what, what our goal should be. We should all be desiring the same kind of maturity. And he shows us this same concern in another passage that's similar in Ephesians chapter 4. If we take a look over there, a turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16, we see some of these same ideas being discussed. I'd encourage you to turn there and read with me Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And I want you, what I want you to note is that in this passage, the work of helping Christians grow to maturity isn't only work that apostles do, no, it's, it's work that God has given apostles and teachers to, to equip the saints for. The work of the whole church is to help the church grow up into Christ. So listen to this passage, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. And he, that's Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. We see here that the church itself, equipped with Christ's gifts, is God's instrument for producing mature Christians. People who look like Christ. When each part is working properly, the church is building itself up by speaking the truth in love into the image of Christ. 
We often note when we cite this passage that, that as I just said, these, these giftings, these apostles and prophets and evangelists, they're given by God to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. By saints here, Paul's not talking about what the Roman Catholic Church calls saints. He's talking about Christians, God's holy ones. Every church member has this job. Every saint in this church has this job of doing this work to help each other grow in every way into Christ. So it's, it's your business how I'm growing into Christ. And it's my business how you're growing. Not because I'm a pastor first and foremost, but because we're fellow members of the same body. That's the overarching theme of this series. Since this is the church's work, we want to know what we're aiming at. And so we're going to spend time over the next several weeks looking at what a mature Christian is. And I hope this helps each of us in our own growth into the image of Christ and that it will guide us as we help each other grow and as we seek to find leaders who will help us grow in these ways. There are many ways we could approach this topic of Christian maturity, but what we're going to do is use the qualifications for elders and deacons that we find primarily in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but we also find in passages like 1 Peter 5 that we're going to look at today and in other places in the New Testament as well. These qualifications are useful because the Lord wants spiritually mature people to serve his church as leaders. And except for the the qualification of elders that they should be able to teach, we see all the qualifications for elders and deacons are character traits that every Christian should have. So D.A. Carson has remarked that these qualifications are remarkable for being unremarkable. They just really describe the normal Christian life. So we can think of these lists of qualifications as, as clusters of maturity markers. All of us, both men and women, should strive to possess the godliness described in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5, even if we're never serving in some official capacity. So our jumping off point for this series is, is what I've called the Christian's example. We find reference to the Christian's example most explicitly in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. Peter exhorts elders to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, being examples to the flock. So elders are to be examples to the people they serve. But what I want us to start off by seeing is that this is not only true for elders. It's not just elders who set examples. Every Christian is to be an example. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to look at the different ways we're called to be examples. But before I do that, before we look at that, I think we may need a bit of help remembering why examples are important, to explore the role of examples in the Christian life. So let's, let's briefly do that. The first thing to say then about, about examples is that we all need examples. Christians need examples. If we're going to grow up into Christ, we need examples of others who are growing in Christ, who are imitating Jesus. I wonder if that's how we typically see ourselves. Do you think that you need a good example to be a Christian, to follow Christ? I think the normal approach that most of us take is that as long as we have our our faith in Jesus and our Bibles and maybe our favorite podcast preacher, that's pretty all we need. We can kind of make do with that. We can be the Christians God wants us to be with that. 
We hope that our church will provide some good teaching, but think, we think that mainly we do the Christian life on our own. But that's not the picture we get in the New Testament. As we've already seen, the Apostle Peter taught that elders are to be examples, that God wants to provide his church with examples. And we see Paul teaching the same thing. So when, when he's instructing these two pastors, Timothy and Titus, he tells them to be examples. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he tells Timothy, Set the believers an example in speech, conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He told Titus, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Paul also held himself out as an example. He does this twice in 1 Corinthians. So we read one of them earlier in 1 Corinthians 4.16 where he, he told the Corinthians to be an imitator of him. And then he went the extra step of sending Timothy to show them his ways. And then in chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's the key step. Paul seems to say there's a chain linking these Corinthian believers to Paul, to Jesus. And so to think that we don't need examples is to ignore what the Apostle Paul here says, and it's really to ignore a major element of, of who Jesus is for us. Jesus is an example. Now, as soon as we say that, we should be quick to say there are many things that Jesus is and that he did that we cannot imitate. So he is the one and only God-man. He's the one and only Savior. He's our Lord. And in his saving work, he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He paid for our sin with his death on the cross. And no other person can save us than Jesus. But if we're clear on that, if we're clear on the way that Jesus is unique, the scriptures then tell us to look to him as an example. According to his humanity, he perfectly trusted and obeyed his heavenly father. He's the perfectly obedient man. He endured suffering as a man without wavering in his faith. He was perfect in love. And Jesus talks about himself as an example in John 13, 34. He puts his own twist on the love one another command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Our Lord says we need examples. We need his example. And we need others' examples as well. We need to watch how our mothers and fathers in the faith, how our brothers and sisters in the faith are following Christ. That is how we learn Christ. We look at the way our brothers and sisters serve and love others, the way they raise their children, the way they serve at work, we watch the way they repent of their sins. We watch their faith when they're suffering. And we see how we are also to live. Once again, we also remember that one of the reasons the Lord provides elders to his church is to provide examples. So you see how the Lord set up the church in a, a well-ordered church. It has within it exemplary Christians who others can follow. And so when we're looking for, for men to serve as elders, we should look for those who set examples for us in following Christ. We should look for people who are imitating Jesus. Thinking that we don't need examples in our lives is a form of pride. 
Have you ever known someone who you're trying to show how to do something and they refuse to listen and they just rush right ahead into whatever it is and they, they mess it all up? Haven't we known people like that? It's, it's obvious as you're watching it unfold, well, this is going to go badly, right? You can just see the pride. How often are we like that in the Christian life? Have you considered the ways that examples have, have served you well in other parts of your life? Have you ever had a good mentor in your career who, who showed you the ropes at a new job? Or what about all the, the good things you picked up from your mom and dad? I mean, this is how children are wired, right? They watch their parents and they copy their parents, sometimes to our parents' great embarrassment, right? Human beings were designed by God to learn from examples. That's how God made us. God created us to learn by watching others. So what about you? Are you watching others? Are you open and humble enough to learn from others? Or do you act as if you've got it all figured out? And do you know any Christians well enough to see the way they're following Christ? This requires some degree of, of intimate knowledge of each other. Are there any ways that you're living the Christian life as if you have nothing to learn? The examples of others instruct us and they encourage us. They remind us we're not alone in our, in our following of Christ. If you've had good examples as a Christian, thank the Lord for them. As a pastor, I get a unique view of the way a lot of you are following Christ, and it's, it's hugely encouraging, especially to see the way you're following Christ in the midst of your trials. But you don't have to be a pastor to see this. You just have to get to know each other and ask each other, how are you, how are you doing in following Christ? How can I learn from you? A church should be full of these kinds of relationships among its members, where we know one another and can watch each other follow Jesus. And this is one way in which our favorite online teachers will be of little help to us. It's easy to find teachers that you like through reading their books or listening to their podcasts or watching their YouTube videos. But usually those kinds of mediums don't allow us to see how those teachers live out their lives day to day. You know, sometimes a good biography will do that for you. But rarely do those teachers that we know and are kind of famous, do we really know what their life is like, how they're loving their wives, how they're enduring hard things. But here in the church, we have that. And we should be on the lookout for brothers and sisters who can show us how to follow Christ. We should be trying to develop those kinds of relationships that allow us to see each other's examples. So Christians need examples. And mature Christians look for and follow Christ-like examples. The flip side of this coin is that uh, not only do we need examples, but we should seek to be examples. That's the second thing to say about Christians and examples. Christians set examples. We should all live our lives in a way, in such a way, as to set an example for our brothers and sisters. We've already seen how elders are supposed to do that, right? Peter instructs elders to do that. Paul instructed Timothy and Titus to be examples. But it's not something that only pastors are to do. We can see this clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. If you want to, you can turn and read that paragraph with me. And remember, these words are not directed to an individual pastor. They're directed to the whole Thessalonian church. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. 
Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul commends these Thessalonian Christians for imitating him and the Lord and then for setting an example that all these other Christians have seen and been encouraged by. Similarly, in chapter 2, verse 14, he says that these Thessalonian Christians became imitators of the churches of Jesus Christ that are in Judea in the way that they suffered. So we see examples all over the place. These, these churches being examples of suffering faithfully in the midst of persecution and others learning from them and following their example. I imagine that God, when you get to heaven, can tell you all the good examples that go from Jesus down to you. He has this bird's eye view of seeing how the faith is passed along. And so the question is, are we passing along our faith to others? Not only with our words, but with, with the way we live our lives. Christians are to lead exemplary lives. Now that, that sounds good in theory, I hope, but thinking about it in practice is a bit scary, right? It's certainly been challenging to me as I've considered these scriptures this week. Am I living as an example? And what parts of my life do I not want to talk about? Do I not want other people to see? And thinking about yourself as an example for others to follow may be one of the fastest ways to realize where you need to repent and grow. But even here, we can be an example. Even in our failures, we can set an example for each other by our humble repentance, by our faith in the gospel. This is why we often pray that we would make our relationships in the church transparent, that we would be willing to tell the embarrassing details about ourselves. This is not just a form of kind of self-punishment. This is because we want to magnify Jesus. It's good for us to be humbled so that Jesus looks marvelous. Even the reason we want hospitality is because it's the way we open up our lives to each other and we, we set examples. When we're considering the idea of examples, uh, of, of seeking good examples, I asked, do you know any Christians well enough to see how they're following Christ? Well, now we need to turn that around. Are you inviting people into your life so that they can see your example? Are you inviting them to know how you're following Jesus? That openness is the first step to being an example. Open your life. Open your home. Open your mealtimes. Invite others to see how you live. Be honest about where you struggle and your sin and your need for repentance. But also be sincere in rejoicing in front of them. Rejoice with them in the ways that Jesus has been good to you. You may think that you have nothing to offer as an example, and you may think that by opening your life you're going to be exposed as a, a substandard Christian. But if you are sincerely seeking to follow Christ, repenting of your sins and trusting in him, 
you will be an encouragement to others. And at the same time, as you, as you welcome others into your life, you're going to get to know them and be encouraged by them as well. It isn't the case that the church kind of neatly divides up into two groups. And we have on this side the example setters and this side the example followers. No, it, it goes both ways all the time. We, we encourage others and are encouraged by them. This, is, this includes your pastors. We have much to learn from you as you follow Christ. We all have something to learn from one another as we imitate Jesus. I hope you know there are people in this church who need to see your example. They will be encouraged by it. So as you measure your kind of success or growth in this way, a simple and helpful question is, who am I inviting into my life? Some of us may have the capacity to invite a lot of people into our lives, but since I think a lot of us are introverts, we may only have the capacity to do that with one person. But that's a good place to start. Invite someone into your life. Invite your family into your life to know how you're following Jesus. Is your faith evident to them? Is your faith evident to your fellow church members? We should say that trying to be an example is not the same thing as proudly bragging about how good you are. The goal of trying to set an example is not to make yourself seem impressive. The goal is to unashamedly and sincerely honor the Lord. That's what Christians are all about. So the scripture's teachings on examples are, are something that we neglect, I think, but we need to meditate on. I hope you will. I hope you'll think about some of these scriptures I've shared this morning. And this would be a great thing for us to talk about after church or at the picnic. Are there any people you can think of that you can name that have been a good example to you? Tell somebody else about that good example. And open up your life and share what God has done for you. All right, so that's the role of examples in the Christian life. Let's dive into 1 Peter chapter 5 and look at the kinds of examples we should set. We're going to look at three ways we should seek to set examples. To set an example of humility, to set an example of hope, and to set an example of good conduct. So let me read for us 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, to walk you through mainly the first of those two kinds of examples. You can find this in the Bibles provided on pages 1016 and 1017. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore you. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be all to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We see here that humility plays a major role in Peter's teaching in these verses. He doesn't specifically tell the elders to be humble, but I think you could say humility is all over his instructions to them. The oversight the elders are to exercise is not about getting their own way, right? Not domineering. They're also not to do this for shameful gain. He says they're to serve willingly and as God would have them. They're to serve cheerfully, humbly, in submission to their God. That's how elders lead. They lead in submission to the chief shepherd to whom they will give an account. So to summarize the kind of humility that should mark an elder's example, we first look at these negatives. They're not to serve in a way to enrich themselves. They're not to serve because they like being in charge and want to rule over people, have their own way. And they're not to serve begrudgingly, under compulsion. These are all species of pride. Instead, elders should willingly serve, and they should serve in submission to God. Elders should serve seeking to please God and not themselves. These are the kinds of men we should call to eldership in the church. Peter then broadens out this theme of humility, and he says that that the young also should have humility and be subject to their elders. And then he says to the whole congregation that they should clothe themselves in humility. And and they're to clothe themselves in humility as they serve each other. So it's clearly not only the elders who are to be marked by this characteristic of humility. This is the whole church. The whole church is to be marked by humbly and cheerfully serving one another. It's hard to separate humility and service. And that's the way we would even describe Christ. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. We are most like Christ when we humbly serve each other. I recently heard the Bible scholar D.A. Carson interviewed about his life and his ministry. And in the interview, he told about the way his, his father cared for his aging mother as she suffered from dementia. He said this about his dad, that his dad was happy, thankful, non-bitter, thankful for the privilege of service. Isn't that an arresting idea? Thankful for the privilege of service. That's an example of humility. Does that describe us? Are we setting that kind of example for each other? That it is our joy to serve each other? When you're granted an opportunity to serve someone in your home or in your church family or your neighbor, are you thankful that God provided that opportunity to be like Jesus? Are we clothing ourselves with humility? As I was thinking about that, I thought about Chick-fil-A. What do they say at Chick-fil-A when you say thank you for your meal? My pleasure, right? And they, they seem to really mean it, right? That's the amazing thing. This is like a fast food joint, and they seem to really seem to like serving. I don't know how they do that, but they've accomplished that in their church or their, their corporate culture, and it's attractive, right? You, you want to go back, right? 
if I take a family of six to a, a fast food place, you want to go to Chick-fil-A, right? There's going to be a lady who helps carry your drinks to the table, right? And they're going to they're gonna seem like it's no big deal when they spill ketchup all over, right? It'll be their pleasure to serve you. The church is a place where we should, we should really mean that. We should be thankful for the privilege of service. But where does that come from? I don't know where it comes from at Chick-fil-A. Where does it come from in the church? We can't manufacture it. I mean, one place it may come from is if we see good examples of that. We see others serving in the church. That will help. That will encourage us. But ultimately, this kind of humility is a fruit of the gospel itself. Just let me read again verses 5 through 7 of 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. What we're given here is a, either you're opposed to God or you're receiving grace from God, right? And humility is a decisive factor in that. I think we can say from this that humility at least is a part of the faith that receives the saving grace of the Lord. Humility is a grace that the Holy Spirit produces in the hearts of those he makes alive. There is no such thing as faith without humbly confessing your sin and receiving what Jesus did for us. And this gets to one of the most tricky parts I found about trying to define a mature Christian. I challenge you to do this. Try to start listing definitions of a mature Christian. What you find you start doing is just listing definitions of a true Christian. A true Christian is this. Someone who's a Christian in name only lacks this. And humility is one of those things. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In an ultimate sense, a proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. Right? If pride is what marks you, you'll have no room for the gospel in your life. If you never humble yourself before the Lord and confess your sins and receive forgiveness, you have no part in Christ. You're not reconciled to God. You're not a Christian. To be a Christian is to be humble. Have you been humbled like that before the Lord? So why spend all this time speaking about humility in the sermon about maturity? Well, here's the reason. Mature Christians recognize that the Christian life not only began with humble faith, but also that it grows with humble faith. See, in our immaturity, we think that humility and faith are something that maybe we start with and then we get a little knowledge and skill in the Christian life and then we leave them behind, perhaps. If you've ever heard the expression, a, a cage-stage Calvinist, that's kind of what's going on there. Right? They come to know the doctrines of grace, they've, they've read a couple websites, right? and all of a sudden they're ready to, to start every uh, conversation with a Christian with an argument about Calvinism. They're ready to kind of beat people over the head with what they know. And the cage stage is kind of saying, well, they need to be locked up for a while until they mature a bit, until they start to grasp the humility that the doctrines of grace should produce so that they can have a, a reasonable conversation about the deep things of God without beating someone over the head with their theology. Mature Christians are seeking to grow in humility 
not to move on from it. Maturity is the process of growth. And mature Christians are are humble enough to admit that we all have plenty of room to grow. One of the scariest things to to encounter is a a Christian who thinks they're mature, but who who gives the impression they have no room for growth. That they they don't repent. A A mature Christian knows they never stop growing on this side of heaven. Is that true for you? So to set an example of humility requires faith in the work of Christ. Faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross, but also faith in that ongoing work he does for us, right? How is humility expressed here? By casting your cares on the Lord and knowing that he cares for you. So brothers and sisters, set an example of humility and look for those people to serve in leadership who are examples of humility. The second kind of example we see in 1 Peter is an example of hope. Mature Christians set an example of hope. When Peter is making his exhortation to the elders, he kind of pauses in verse 1 and he, he lists a few reasons of why he can make this exhortation. And the last one he says is that he's making this exhortation because he is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter's looking forward to something, right? He's had all these wonderful experiences. He's seen Jesus transfigured. He's, he's been there at Acts 2 preaching when, when tongues of fire descended. He saw Pentecost. He saw the Gentiles brought into the church. G- Peter's seen so much, but he's looking for more. He's looking forward to the revelation of God's glory, and he knows that even now he's a partaker in it. He knows that suffering is the order of the day for himself and the people he's writing to, but he's convinced That suffering is not permanent. It will give way to glory. So Jesus suffered and was glorified, and the same pattern holds true for Christ's people. We are suffering now, but we will be glorified when God's glory is revealed in Christ's coming. And so in the midst of suffering, Peter has hope. This hope and glory that's going to be revealed We see Christians are also hopeful, not just Peter, right? This applies to everyone, because we know that by faith, we are already raised with Jesus, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There's a wonderful theology of that already, that we've already experienced in Christ. We endure today, looking forward to the future, knowing that we will one day be glorified and perfected. What what God has begun in us, he will bring to completion and we will be in God's glorious presence forever. So Peter first describes himself as this partaker in glory, but then he talks to the elders he's addressing, and he he calls their attention forward to a glorious revelation. He tells them, and when the chief shepherd appears in verse 4, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I don't know exactly what that unfading crown of glory is, but he said the elders' hope here is grounded in their hope in Christ. They serve the church looking forward to Christ's return, looking forward to this glorious crown that will be theirs when Christ returns. So we should look for those who serve us as elders to be people who have their eyes set on heaven. We need leaders who have an eternal perspective. After Peter addresses elders, we see the same idea, the same idea of hope held out to all Christians. So in verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time 
he may exalt you. And then in verse 10, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. A Christian is someone who has hope in God's saving work. This is a work that the Lord has already begun in our lives, and as we said, we are awaiting its completion. A Christian has hope in the coming glory that the Lord is bringing. And once again, what we've fallen into is just defining what a true Christian is, right? We, we say that we have this hope, but we see that there are some people who say they have a relationship with Jesus. They might think they're going to heaven, but, but that hope of glory has no real effect on the way they live their lives. So true Christians have this hope, and unbelievers may say they have it, but when you drill down, when things go badly in their life, they're in despair, right? Mature Christians, we would say, I think, are growing in this hope. They, le- they are looking more and more to stop trusting in the temporary good things of this life and seeking to set their minds on things above. So if someone were to look at your life, what would they say that you're hoping in? Would they say that your hope is in your 401k or is it in your kid's success? Is it in your own career ambitions? We usually get a good signal of what our hope is in when that thing is threatened, right? So if your hope was in your 401k, this year may be a hard year for your hope, right? Mature Christians are, are happy, though, to be weaned from the things of this world. When God takes those things away, they're able to say, you know, I was hoping that too much, but I have a greater hope that moth and rust and the stock market cannot destroy So mature Christians hope in in Christ and the glory that's to be revealed. We live for the day when our good shepherd will be revealed and we'll be finally and fully transformed into his likeness. We know that all the trials that we experience now are preparing us for that day. Our Lord is graciously working. He's weaning us off of this world so that as we trust in Christ today, We will trust him more and trust him the same way we will trust him for all eternity. We will have this close relationship where Jesus is all our glory, right? We sing about that in that song, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I wonder if you've ever given thought to how you could cultivate that kind of hope. I think we could cultivate hope with generosity with the things that we have. When we give away the things that God's provided, we're reminding ourselves that our hope is not in our possessions. So we can be an example of hope by using our money to invest in gospel ministry or by helping others, by investing it in things that will have eternal value. That's a statement of where our hope lies. And that's what Jesus said, right? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Put your treasure where you want your hope to be, to cultivate hope. Our prayer life can also cultivate this kind of hope. It's really good to pray for our daily needs, right? The Lord teaches us to pray that way in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. But he also teaches us to pray for the coming of his kingdom. Pray for eternal things. One way to cultivate this hope is to pray consistently for the salvation of your family and friends. 
pray for gospel preaching churches to grow and to be planted in our, our area, our city, in our, our world. Pray that you'll persevere to the end and pray that same thing for your brothers and sisters in the church. Pray in such a way that it becomes clear to your heart that eternal things are more valuable and important than temporary things. It's not to say temporary things are not important. But by setting our minds on things above, they become relativized. They become relatively less important than we're naturally prone to make them. I imagine you can think of other ways to cultivate this hope, to grow in hope. How can you do that? If you, if you think of something, I'd be delighted for you to share it with me. Again, another, another great picnic conversation. But how can we cultivate growth in this kind of hope? How can we look forward to when that proper time comes that the Lord will exalt us? Mature Christians set an example of hope. I've saved this most obvious kind of example for last, that we set an example of good conduct. Mature Christians set an example of good conduct. And part of the reason for doing this is that in the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at more examples of good conduct. But it's also not as clear in 1 Peter where we started here, although we do see it. Peter seems to have this in mind when he calls us to be sober-minded and watchful, knowing that our adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. How does the devil devour us? Well, it's often by leading Christians into some kind of sin, right? Or he he leads people who think they're Christians into things that, that show that they never were. And sadly, we've all seen this happen. We've seen people that we, we love get devoured as they pursue unbelief and immorality. But we've already read a few other verses in our, our time today that show this kind of example of good conduct. So again, what, what Paul said to Titus and Timothy, set the believers an example in speech, conduct, in love, and faith, and purity. To Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. This kind of exemplary behavior is also what we see when we look at the qualifications for elders. The very first qualification is that an overseer or an elder or pastor must be above reproach. But this isn't something that only pastors are to be. As as Timothy continues to uh, get instructions about how he's to shepherd different members of the congregation, Paul writes in chapter 5 about about how to instruct older men and older women. And he said, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. So to be, re- to be reproached is to be criticized or accused of some failure or deficiency. The scriptures tell us that even Jesus was reproached. But, he was, but, to, be above reproached, but to be above reproach means that the accusations don't stick. Right? So Jesus was called a liar and a blasphemer, but it was clearly he wasn't those things, right? Upon further examination, he was proved to be perfectly righteous. The theologian Gerald Bray said that there must be no cause for complaint in the way an overseer lives or in what he teaches. The word cause there is very important. For the person who's above reproach, there may indeed be complaints, but they are not caused by a fundamental moral failure. A pastor in D.C. named Bobby Jameson explains above reproach like this. He says it's to be free from obvious inconsistency, to have no glaring fault that could be easily pointed out and agreed on to discredit, to the discredit of your character. 
the Christ people seek to have this kind of above reproach character. We seek to have a Christ-like character. And that gets to the why of why we should seek good conduct. Not only just because the Lord commands it, but we understand as Christians that our conduct reflects something of our God. So if we profess to be of Christ, to belong to him, and our lives are of, of poor conduct, of unrighteousness, we're communicating a lie about Jesus. Mature Christians take this seriously, and we're conscientious about all of our conduct. We don't want any part of our life to lead another person astray or to provide a confusing picture of the Lord's own purity and holiness. And so that's why the above reproach person is quick to admit where they failed and to confess their sins. Again, they want to be clear, the way I was acting there was not right. That did not reflect the character of my Lord. Now again, all true Christians should be concerned about their conduct. Yet we realize that especially new Christians are going to need help in, in having their consciences formed by the word of God. A new Christian may not immediately realize that some of their things that were just habits are actually sinful. And so we who are mature, we bear with them and we try to teach them and set an example for them. Once again, maturity understands that sanctification is a process. One of the things that we're committed to as church members is we're committed to that process of sanctification. We're committed to continuing to try to grow in holiness. We want to grow in good conduct. We want to grow in understanding how important good conduct is. We want that to be the trajectory of our life, that we care more and not less about our lives before the Lord. We also see that bad theology can corrupt our understanding for the need for good conduct. So someone coming from a legalistic background or maybe uh, some, some kinds of Roman Catholic backgrounds, they may struggle to understand that they're not justified in God's eyes by their obedience. They might be trying to obey their way into God's good graces. Then we have people who have been raised in legalistic backgrounds who reject their legalism and they kind of just revel in their Christian freedoms in maybe foolish or even sinful ways. So setting a good example or being above reproach, we need to be clear, doesn't save anyone, but also neither is the Lord pleased by living carelessly. Right? We want to live carefully. We need to be honest that in a cynical age, we're naturally suspicious of talking about good conduct and being a good example like this. I think we're allergic to anything that sounds idealistic. So if you pursue this kind of life, a life of, of good conduct, of holiness before the Lord, you very well may be made fun of by your friends. You may be thought of as someone who takes their Christian life too seriously. But we need encouragement to fight against this kind of cynicism. We need to see each other pursuing holiness. And if you're careful about your life and what you, what you do, what you watch, what you approve of, that encourages me to be, to be careful in my life. So it's good and godly to, to seek to live a pure life. It's good and godly to seek to speak in ways that reflect God's goodness and his truthfulness. 
It is good and godly to live a life that's marked by sincere love for God and sincere love for your neighbor. This is how our Savior lived. We pursue this kind of life not to save ourselves, but because we have been bought by Christ's blood. Christ's precious blood was shed for us. And this kind of life, a godly life, commends the gospel and it honors our pure and holy God. This kind of life is a sacrifice of praise to God. So we should all ask, am I living a life that's marked by purity, by truth and love? Mature Christians are seeking to set an example of that kind of good conduct. How are you growing in this way? How are you growing in love and purity and truth? How can we help each other live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts? It's a good question to reflect on. We see in all this that mature Christians don't happen by accident. Maturity has to be cultivated. And growth requires the whole church working together as equipped by Christ, speaking the truth in love. Part of the way maturity happens is as Christians set examples for each other. Christian maturity is finally Christ-likeness. Are you trusting in Christ? And if you're trusting in him, are you imitating Christ? Remember that Christ took the form of a servant, being obedient unto death. Are you imitating his humble service. Christ also endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him. Are you growing in that kind of hope? Christ in his life also personified the fruit of the Spirit. So are you putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience? Are we setting an example of Christian maturity? May the Lord help us to set examples for one another and to work with all God's power until we all grow up into every way, into him who is our head, into Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us without examples. Your word is filled with examples of saints who trusted you and who followed you faithfully. Christ, our Savior, shows us how to serve and love, how to hope. And we thank you for the examples we have sitting here in this room with us. Brothers and sisters committed to following Jesus, to living humbly before you, to setting their hope in Christ to obeying all that Jesus commanded. We pray for your help, Father, to grow up into maturity and to help each other grow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.